heads in prayer with me. Almighty God, we come before you as your church. We together praise you for the forgiveness that we find in you. As a church, Father, we pray on behalf of our, of our body. Father, we pray for Jose and Allie Mercy and their new baby daughter, Neely. We thank you for her new life, and we pray that you would continue to give Neely and Allie good health. Father, we pray for Jose and Allie as they enter into parenthood. We pray that they would faithfully raise up Neely in the Lord, that they would teach her and disciple her well, and we pray for her that she would one day turn from her sin and come to faith in Christ. Father, as we pray for this family, we're reminded uh, of those who in our congregation are hurting, who have had the, the blessing of motherhood withheld or taken away. Father, we pray for those who are struggling with infertility or have not been able to have children or those who have, have had children that have passed away or, or are out of a relationship with their parents. Father, we pray that you would be near to those who are hurting in our congregation today. Father, we also pray for those who are physically hurting. We remember together Sue Medley as she has a procedure on Tuesday and Brenda Korn as she has a procedure on Thursday. Father, we ask that these would be successful procedures. We pray that you would minimize pain in these sisters' bodies, that you would provide for their needs, that our church would do what we ought to do and love them well, I pray. Father, we think not just of our church, but we remember that they're being faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we pray for them today, too. Father, I'm reminded of uh, my brother Adam Masterson at Lake Osborne Presbyterian Church, a church that is different than ours, but is still preaching the same gospel. Father, as Adam preaches today from Romans 16, I pray that you would give him clarity in his words to expose the word of God clearly. Father, I pray for their church, that people would come to faithfulness. Father, we also think about churches around the world today, not just in our area, but the ends of the earth. Father, this morning we are glad to welcome the Martinez family. We pray for Joe and Janie, for Christian and Micah and Eliana. Father, would you allow that this family be found faithful in the work of the gospel? Father, would you guide Joe as he shepherds his flock in Peru? Father, would you raise up other elders to serve in their church? Father, would you protect their family and unify them together in Peru? Father, would you provide for their needs so that they are lacking in nothing? Father, we pray for more support for the Martinez family. We pray that families in our churches or other churches would give monthly to provide for their wonderful work. Father, we thank you 
for this church that we are able to hear good reports of the gospel going forward. We pray that you bless them. Father, now we ask that you would be with us as we turn to your word. Would you encourage the faint-hearted? Father, would you confront those of us needing repentance? Father, would you point our eyes to Jesus Christ? We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would, think with me for just a moment as we begin about shame. I'm sure you've felt it at some point in your life, realizing that you did something wrong. Felt shame. Shame lurks in shadows. If you've ever felt shameful for doing something wrong, you know that it, it survives in the darkness. It's, it's a bit like that character. If you've ever read The Hobbit in J.R.R. Tolkien, talks about this character named Gollum, this creature who lives deep in the dark crevices of, a, of an underground cave. And Tolkien calls this Gollum creature in the dark a small, slimy creature. He was dark as darkness, except for two round, pale eyes on his thin face. He hid in the dark caves, never really showing himself in the light of day. He was shaped by the darkness around him, yet ever watching, creeping around, offering riddles to travelers in their way, yet never truly coming out and being seen never truly being acknowledged. I think a, a sense of shame is a bit similar. If, if you've ever sinned in a shameful way, or honestly, if you've ever been sinned against in a shameful way, which are not the same thing, you might relate to this dark sense of feeling unworthy, of needing to hide, and yet still being watched in the shadows. When we experience shame for our sin, honestly, we do what, what Adam just naturally did the first time he ever sinned against God. We run and hide from the presence of God. He heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the garden, and he was afraid knowing that he was, he was naked. He was exposed. And so he hid himself. Shame in the Bible is proven to be incredibly painful, and it fills men and women with regret. And yet, as we're reading through the book of Luke together, when shameful sinners meet Jesus Christ, an unexpected thing happens. Jesus counters the darkness, not by minimizing it, but by gently shining light into it. Not, like, not by acting like sin is just no big deal before God, but by showing his glorious power over the shamefulness of our sin. Jesus consistently shows us sinners in the book of Luke just how shameful our sin actually is. And yet he shows how beautiful his forgiveness is. This is what I want to convince you of today. I want to show you how your sin is truly shameful, but his forgiveness is utterly amazing. 
we're finishing Luke 7 today. If you haven't already turned there to Luke chapter 7, we're looking at this story of this forgiven woman. To make my argument, I'm going to just draw out four points from the text. The first two emphasize how shameful our sin is. So we're going to see the scandal of our sin and the oversight of our unrighteousness. Then the, the second two emphasize just how amazing his forgiveness is. We'll see the proof of our forgiveness, and we'll see the one who gives so let's jump into the text. You'll remember from the recent context of what we've been studying that this passage that Jesus had recently showed himself to be the better Elijah and the better Elisha by healing this centurion servant and the, by raising the widow's son from the dead. He was this, this great prophet. And then he taught on John the Baptist, who Jesus then shows was also a, a prophet and even more than a prophet. And yet, the Pharisees rejected John. Well, in today's passage, one Pharisee, one from that group, comes and invites Jesus in. It, it seems like this, this Pharisee might want to see for himself, is this man a prophet? This is what we've been hearing, and he wants to watch for himself, perhaps. So he invites Jesus to this banquet to this, this feast, and we enter with him today into that Pharisee's home, which is where we see, number one, the scandal of our sin. The scandal of our sin. You see, this is, I, I want to argue today, given to us as an illustration, a, a parable that just vividly pictures our sin before Christ. Look at verses 37 through 38. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flax of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, it's not strange that Jesus is, is lying down, is, is reclining here at this table. This scene is a, a banquet in, in the Middle East, and in very Middle Eastern fashion, uh, you would rest together on the floor, perhaps leaning on your left arm with your right arm out, eating the meal, and your feet stretched out behind you. It's also not surprising to us that a guest could just wander into a great gathering like this. A great banquet like this would have often left the, the back doors open to the hall so that others could come in and perhaps stand at the perimeter of the room and, and watch the feast. Having just lived in the Middle East myself, we've acquainted many, uh, we're well acquainted with wedding halls that are like this, where guests can just kind of wander in and kind of see the activity that's going on at the center of the banquet. A, a, a spectacle kind of on, on public display. But what is surprising, and what should be surprising to you as you read this story, is who comes in to this religious man's house. Even in our day, we can just feel the awkwardness of this situation. And I assure you, in a Middle Eastern context, this would have been far more awkward. 
far more scandalous. Luke even draws our attention to it. Look how he begins in verse 37. He says, behold, so take note. Look what happened. A woman of the city who was a sinner enters. Likely this was a euphemism for an immoral woman, either a, a known adulteress or perhaps a prostitute, someone who was just notably recognized as being stained by the shame of sin. And so the, the tension in this moment is just thick. And it gets even more awkward because she doesn't just enter this room and stand at the perimeter. No, notice how Luke even writes this in such a way that he's, he's almost piling up phrase after phrase after phrase, noting her every move. These, these seconds must have felt like an eternity to that room full of religious, good people. She, she stands behind Christ. She's, she's weeping. In fact, as, as one scholar notes, this word for weeping isn't just a, a passing whimper. No, this word is used to describe rain showers. She's literally bawling her eyes out. And Jesus doesn't move. She began to wet his feet with her tears as she stands there at his feet. And Jesus doesn't move. She then wipes her tears with hair from her head. In, in Jewish tradition, the Talmud, regardless of motive, this would have been contested. Jesus lets it happen. He doesn't move. Then she kisses his feet. She, she anoints his feet with ointment, perhaps ointment that she had used in another profession. So Luke has our attention, does he not? This should feel shocking. And friends, if this feels awkward to you to have this known sinner, this woman of the city, coming in and pouring out devotion to our Lord, well, let me just say three things to you. First of all, just please note this is not sensual. So I, I do not understand this is to be sinfully inappropriate. Our Lord sees her heart, as we'll see in a minute, and he saw from her a pure devotion. But second of all, if it feels awkward to you, it should affirm to us, once again, that this actually happened. I mean, Luke, who's writing to Theophilus to convince him of the, the credibility of our faith, just would have never thrown in a story like this. He would have never wanted to invent a religion like this. No, this, this had to have happened. But thirdly, if it feels awkward to you, it should I believe that's actually the point. You see, this woman's open and sinful and shameful past is in just shocking proximity to our Lord. She is she's just strangely close to the very Son of God. So if you're thinking you would be uncomfortable with this scene, Remember who's sitting there at the scene. This 
This moment is a, a living illustration of the incomprehensible closeness. Our mediator came to us who are stained by sin. Oh, friends, I think we are meant to see and feel this shock of the scandal of our sin coming close to our Lord. Here is Christ, the, the image of the invisible God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one being with the Father, the one through whom all things are made. This is who's sitting there. And look at who comes to him. Here's the one, here's the one sitting there that when Isaiah talks about him, John tells us that it was Isaiah saw Christ in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah talks about him, he says, the train of his robe filled the temple, and there were these heavenly angelic beings that nonstop just cried out, holy, 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 centuries before. And then centuries later, at the, the end of the New Testament in Revelation, when we get another glimpse into heaven, John tells us that we see again this figure that is again surrounded by angels who are still singing, holy, holy, holy. They're not getting tired of declaring this person's complete holiness, his complete separation from sin, his complete perfection. And here we see him sitting in this home with this woman this close. I think it's meant to arrest our attention. Scripture, you see, frequently refers to us in our sin as the unfaithful woman. You see it constantly throughout the Old Testament. James calls us, you adulterous people. Our, our sin is unfaithfulness. Our sin is adultery in the language of Scripture. And we have, we have sold our sin. We have sold ourselves to sin, rather, like a woman on the street. And in this story, we relate to this woman. The scandal of our sin is that according to Scripture, Christ allows us, like this woman, to come offer worship to him. Oh, beloved, Christ allows us in. How does that happen? Well, this is just point number one. The scandal of our sin is worse than we realize. But not only that, notice number two, the, the, the oversight of our self-righteousness. You see, the one who is shamed in this story, not the one who comes in shameful, but the one who's shamed, the one who's rebuked in this story is not the woman. He, here's the problem. Some of you might be like me. You first read this story... And you didn't first relate to this sin-stained woman. No, you instinctively said what I said, which is also what the Pharisees said. How is it that Jesus gets this close to this prostitute? As if our sin was any better than hers. Look back at the text and see how Jesus' host watches this scene unfold. The dinner host is now able to conclude who Jesus is in verse 39. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, like we've been hearing, he would have known who 
and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Quickly, just notice three traits of self-righteousness right off the bat and see if you see yourself here. Number one, he thinks he sees better than Jesus. Number two, for him, her sin overshadows her repentance. Number three, he divides the world up between those who are sinners and righteous people. Is this you today? Don't get me wrong. We'll see in a moment that her sin is indeed serious, but this Pharisee is doing what we saw last week. He's, he's joining the Jonas of the world, like me, who after witnessing repentance, climbs up over the city, sits on the hill, and stews over somebody else's sin. Here's the voice of self-righteousness. It's that voice in your heart that says, good thing God has us Pharisees. He might have made an oversight. He might have missed it. He missed this one. If he was a better prophet, he'd see this sin like I do. Now, you probably never say those words, church. But do you feel them? Do you, do you ever look on others and feel like God might be missing the sin of someone else? Is there anyone in your life that you feel like God is not dealing with them as he really should? If so, watch out. Watch out. Jesus takes this man to town. Here's the irony of the text we're about to see. I'm about to show it to you. Come back to it in a minute. Self-righteous people think God is making an oversight. Oh, but self-righteous people are themselves the one making countless oversights. Look at verse 40. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> Uh-oh. This isn't going to be good. This is, this is, the, I relate to this moment. This is, the moment my dad calls me from the other room, and he goes, Jeffrey Allen Kelly, I want to talk to you. You ever been there before? <laughs> this man is headed to the hot seat. <laughs> I mean, look at it. He's, Luke starts it with saying, Jesus answering him. <laughs> Hold up. This Pharisee had just been thinking to himself. He wasn't speaking yet. He was, what was he thinking? He was reflecting about how the omniscient God of the universe was missing something. <laughs> and so the omniscient God of the universe responds to his thoughts. He answers him. Be careful when you think God is missing something. Not only that, but did you notice that this Pharisee had been nameless before this? Suddenly, Jesus calls him out by name. Simon. Now, by the way, Simon is a common name here. This isn't a Simon that we've already met in the text. Jesus calls him out by name. Look what he says. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two 
debtor. Not one, two. And one owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Okay, so did you, did you catch the illustration here? In, in today's term, just imagine a friend in difficult times who has to borrow $10,000. Then imagine you have a tragedy strike and you actually have to borrow $100,000. And somebody came along and realized neither of you are really going to be able to repay either debt and forgives you both. Who will be more relieved? Well, if you had $100,000 forgotten, your celebration at the feet of that person who forgave that debt is going to look pretty intense. You will experientially know what you have been let go of. R.C. Sproul says those who have who know they have been forgiven a great debt are stirred to great love and gratitude. Jesus is just implicitly calling this Pharisee out. Jesus is saying this woman's greater knowledge of forgiveness has given her a greater love. And then Jesus highlights Simon's oversight. We find out, as we read on, that he had failed to even wash Jesus' feet. He, he had failed to, to greet Jesus when he entered. He had failed to, to anoint his head. All of these would have been just common courtesies. And Simon had just overlooked them all. So get this. Get what's happening. This man spotted the sinner, but he missed loving the Savior. that ever define you? Do you ever spend time spotting the sinners around you and miss loving the Savior? No, I do. It seems by his rebuke, Jesus thought that, that this was more shameful th than whatever this woman had done. The fact is, Jesus is calling him a debtor. Jesus is calling this good man a debtor who has a debt that he also can't pay. Just Simon was less aware of his debt. By the way, don't be distracted in this parable by these relative amounts. It's not as if the, the, the Pharisee had just a, a little amount to pay off. No, in another parable in Matthew, when Jesus thinks about debt before God and compares our debt before him, he compares it to 10,000 talents. Matthew 18, 24, which in today's currency would be something like $3.5 billion. More debt than you could ever possibly imagine paying off on your own. Now, this parable here is emphasizing the relative weight or the relative awareness of forgiven sin. The point is, for the Pharisee, and, and the point is for us, that us outwardly moral people in the room, those of us whose lives look pretty cleaned up, well, we are at risk of undervaluing our forgiveness. You could be at risk of undervaluing your forgiveness. 
we are at risk of not loving Christ because we, we understand somehow the debt, because it, it looks different than another debt, uh, as if we start to think maybe we could pay that off by our goodness. We are forgiven little when the greatness of our sin is not evident to us. We miss out on loving God. Tim Keller says it rightly. If we think we are not all that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. Well, thankfully, this, this story not only shows us the, the shamefulness of our sin, both the, the sin of this woman and the sin, the, sh the shame of self-righteousness, but it also shows us what forgiveness does. Look at point number three. Look at the proof of our forgiveness. Number three, the proof of our forgiveness. Jesus reflects on what this sinful yet forgiven woman did out of love. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she has loved much, but he was forgiven little loves little. You see, when, when Jesus sees this woman's actions, the, the, the crying and the, the, the cleaning with the hair, the, the kissing, the anointing, he sees her heart, and he sees evidence of a forgiven heart. Jesus interprets the scene that she's sitting there making at his feet. This, this scene might have looked embarrassing to others. It might have been understood. But Jesus saw genuine grief, presumably over her sin. Jesus saw genuine devotion, worship of him. Jesus saw faith that produced a genuine love, a deep love for him. We're not told if, if perhaps this woman had met Jesus previously or is just relying on teachings that she had heard, but regardless, she clearly knew to come to Christ, to grieve. Whereas a host should have anointed Jesus' head, she didn't presume to do this. Instead, at his feet, she spent the most valuable thing he had. Perhaps this was even a sign that she was giving up a, a previous profession. Whereas, whereas a host would have just, in Middle Eastern culture, come and, and kissed Jesus on the cheek. Uh, no, she comes before him like you come before a king. She comes kissing his feet, a sign of deference and, and homage. She she treats Jesus like that kingly figure that we see back in Psalm chapter 2. Do you remember it? When David speaks of the Messiah as the anointed one, saying, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now it's interesting, observing all of this, Jesus doesn't publicly outline her sins like he did for the self-righteous man. No, this repentant woman leads far less of a rebuke. 
But he, he also just doesn't minimize her sins. Did you see verse 47? He said, her sins, which are many. So the, the, the shame of her sin is not dealt with by acting like it never happened, or by hiding it, or by, by taking it and putting it off in the corner of a cave somewhere. No, no, the shame of her sin is dealt with by taking it to Christ. He can handle it. He can handle her sin, which her sins, which are many. Church, I, I wonder, are you trying to bear the shame of your sin today? I wonder if there are any here who are, are wrestling with a past sin done by you or against you. I, I wonder if there are any here who are like this woman, living sexually immoral lives. But God calls us to live and to preserve intimacy for the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. Perhaps you're not being faithful or considering not being faithful in the covenant of marriage. Perhaps you're considering living with someone you're not married to. Perhaps you're looking at pornography. Perhaps you're seeking pleasure apart from commitment. Let me invite you as directly as I can today. Collapse at the feet of Jesus. Grieve your sin like this woman. Fi find someone who's, who's not a Pharisee, but a, but a fellow forgiven sinner to help you with your sin. But go to Christ. He can handle it. And as you do, you'll find your love for him grow. This is the proof of forgiveness. A genuine love for Christ. A devotion for him. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Her love proved her forgiveness. As one commentator rightly explains, her love was not the ground of a pardon she had come to seek, but the proof of a pardon she had come to acknowledge. Her love was not the ground of a pardon she had come to seek, but the, the proof of a pardon she had come to not acknowledge. She loved much. What, what an incredible moment this is. Praise God. This is so paradoxical. Here we have this religious leader being educated on how to prove his love for God by an immoral woman. See, Jesus doesn't just call this, this sinner to repentance, but he calls the self-righteous people as well to repentance. The worst sinner in the eyes of the world the one, is the one that's giving herself away in genuine devotion and love to him. She is the one pouring out herself to our Savior. And this, by the way, let's just... Uh, tiptoe into the next chapter, because this is where Jesus goes next. Verse, chapter 8, the first three verses there, uh, Luke points out that this wasn't just this woman, but it was this, this serving love for Christ just was kind of overflowing out of disciples who came and were forgiven by Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 8, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. 
and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So transformed women, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the, the wife of Cusa, and Herod, household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Here we, we find this, this list of women who Jesus had transformed and who are now seemingly vital parts of Jesus' ministry. Let me just take a sidebar here for a minute. Is that all right? This was just uncommon. This is not normal to find a rabbi being followed and supported by a group of women around him. Luke wants us to, to make sure we see it. He, he kind of underlines it by just taking a sidebar in the text here and showing that women who have come to Christ are now serving him. I think this is so valuable, by the way, First Boynton, for us as a church. Because we are here being led as a church by elders who Scripture teaches rightly in First Timothy 2 that they are roles to be held for men. But, but Scripture is clearly not silent about the important work of godly women in the work of the church and the work of the kingdom. We just see it here, black and white. The role of, of women in our church is complementing. It's, it's not a secondary value in the eyes of God. And, and honestly, as I just look at over our church, I'm just so thankful for, for what I see here. I think this is a place for encouragement, how, how God has just continually used so many godly women in our church to build up our church. Church, this is beautiful. I mean, I, I can think of Cherry Douglas serving, coordinating Awana week after week, and many other ladies with her. Or Diana Sowers serving to coordinate our welcoming ministry with many other ladies serving with her. Or Casey and Kathy upstairs, even right now, serving so that we can be meeting in this room. Or Sharon Deason and Heidi Case and, and other Bible study leaders that week in and week out teach other women in the Word of God, fulfilling Titus 2.4, so that the older women in our church are teaching the younger women in godliness. Or Kathy Bowman coordinating our security schedule. I, I could keep going on and on and on. My point is, is that Luke 8, 1 through 3 is just illustrated so well in our church. So just as a practical application, before you leave the building today, find a sister who is serving in our church and just encourage her. Sisters, you can do it as well. Men, take the lead in this. Find someone that's serving in our church and encourage her for, for God's work in her, the kingdom. All right, sidebar over. We should conclude. Let's, let's end our time together on point number four, looking to Jesus Christ. Point four, the one who gives peace. You see, at the end of this story, notice who Jesus addresses. Jesus turns and talks not to Simon and not to the crowd, even though they're talking about him. No, he talks to this woman who is stained by the shame of sin. Verse 48. And he said to her, 
your sins are forgiven. I wonder if you can say that today. Can you say that your sins are forgiven? If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, the Bible says that your sin has separated you from God. The Bible says that your sin has indeed stained you. It has left its mark on you so that you are actually unworthy before God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came as the Son of God to offer forgiveness for our sin, to cleanse us for our sin. He could say this to this woman that day because very soon he would endure the cross, despising its shame, in order to take the penalty for our sin. He died and he was buried, he rose again, so that anyone, anyone here, who will trust in him by faith, well, you will find your sins perfectly covered. Like, completely, utterly covered, washed, eternally, a hundred percent, without stain, forgiven. All you must do is look to Christ in faith. But anyone who does not will bear the punishment of their sin themselves. Verse 48, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? This is reminiscent, by the way, of Luke 5 with the paralytic. We saw this already. Jesus' authority over sin is just shocking. Suddenly, the, the most remarkable thing in the room is no longer this, this woman who's sitting at the feet of the teacher. No, it's the one who is saying he can wipe away sin. Who is this that forgives sin? It's God incarnate sitting in that room with them that day. It's Emmanuel, God with us. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners that are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Her love proved her forgiveness. Oh, but if you're wondering if you're proven, do you have enough love? Do you have enough love to, to prove that you've been forgiven? Look where Jesus goes back to, verse 50. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. You see, it's not the depth of your love for Christ that will save you. It's the one whom your faith is resting in. Look to Jesus today. Collapse at his feet. Fall there. Fall into his arms. See if he'll catch you. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Faith in him saves you. 
and notice how he'll send you away. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What must it have been like for this woman to see Jesus looking down at her and to hear these words? Th this woman who, who night after night after night and, and morning after morning after morning was just filled with regret, very aware of her sin before God be told go in peace I have to imagine that flood of tears represented a, a heart that was just torn by sin her creator looks at her and says you can have peace Christian I don't, I don't know the varieties of sin that are in your life I don't know how, how well you feel their shame I don't know if your, your understanding of shame is miscalibrated. I don't know if you're seeing it rightly, but I know that it's there. I don't know that what you've done. I don't know what you've done that if, if everyone in this room just knew all about, if we put it on the screen, where you would just sink so deep in your chair filled with regret. But I do know if you come to Christ, not, not like a, a self-righteous Pharisee, not like one who's living focused on the sin of others, but as one who is broken in tears at the feet of your Savior, he will send you away in glorious peace. May that be true of us today. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that is on offer in Jesus Christ. We thank you that Christ came and went to that cross, died, was buried, and resurrected for us so that we could be washed, so that we could say, not I, but Christ, so that we could be free and cleansed from sin for eternity. Father, I pray for those in this room who need to truly understand this better. I pray that you'd give freedom today. Father, I pray for a myriad of meaningful conversations in this room as we go out and apply what it means to have our sins forgiven. Father, I pray that you would work in us worship of this God-man.